chapter today. And we had the, the first 11 verses. Let me see where we are. We start in the first chapter of the 16th, uh, the first verse of the 16th chapter today. But we need to rehash just a little bit because he starts out by saying, I've told you all this to guard you against the breakdown of your faith. So we need to know what he's told them. What were all of these things that he had told them to faith, not to falter and fall along the way. And so where we need to go back is to the first of the 15th chapter because this is a continuation, a continuation of the discourse, the teaching on the true vine. And so we need to remember from the beginning, he begins to say, I am the vine, the true. I am the true vine. All your fulfillment will be found in me. Now, what I want you to remember, if you're going to stand up in these days I'm talking about, if you're going to stand up, you're going to have to remember that is a branch on the vine. You must fulfill the purpose of the branch, and that is to bear fruit, to glorify the Father. And you can't do this in your own strength. You can only do it as you dwell in the vine. This is the meat of the teaching on the vine. Now, we got that, I hope. We can do nothing apart from the vine. We can do everything if we dwell in the vine, not just in the vine by way of salvation, but dwelling in the vine by way of fellowship and communion daily with the, the true vine, with Jesus Christ. All right, so if you get that, this is what he's saying. If that happens in your life, you will bear fruit. And the fruit, once again, that he's talking about is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Don't ever forget when we talk about fruit to remember that it's love and joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Quiet inner things. Quiet inner things. These are the things that will show whether or not we're dwelling in the vine and are in fellowship with him. And he's producing this fruit in and through us. And then the vine of service, of genuine service, service that's born out of uh, an inner motivation that causes us to do what we do for Christ's sake because we love him. That's the inner motivation that we have to have in order to bear the fruit of service that he's talking about. And then not only the fruit of the spirit, but the fruit of service, but the fruit of souls. If we dwell in the vine, if we dwell in the vine and live in relation, this relationship with the Christ each day, People will be drawn to him, and souls will be won to him. These are the three areas of fruit that he's talking about. All right, so he says, this is what I want you to bear. This is what you've been saved for. This is exactly what I expect of you as a born-again Christian, is that this emanate out from your life, and this is how they'll know that you love me, and how they'll know that you're my disciples. These are teachings, he says. These are the things I want you to remember. These are the things I've taught you just in the past few hours. And then he says, all of these things are going to be, you're going to have to have my joy. You're going to have to have my peace. This is not something the world can offer you. This is something you must get from the true vine. And so you can have this joy and you can have this peace in the midst, in the midst of the world that you live in, that world I've chosen you out of. You can have this peace. You can have this joy if you dwell in the vine. You must keep all this teaching in mind if you're going to come over and understand what we're going in today. Arnie says that this is the greatest love in the world. And this is the way you show that you love me is by love for one another. And last week we went over and over again the fact that he said this one time after another. This is what I expect of you. And you cannot love, you cannot love one another unless you dwell in the vine. And you cannot overcome a world unless you dwell in the vine. There's no way we can live the Christian life in love and victory if we don't dwell in the vine. All of that ties in to what he's saying when he says, I've told you all this to guard against the breakdown of your faith. There won't be a breakdown of the faith if we live and abide and dwell in the, in the vine, if we have daily fellowship and communion with him, if we love like he loved, there will be no breakdown of our faith. Those are the things he taught us. Right, he went on and he says, 
The world is going to hate you. The world is going to persecute you. You can expect this. You can expect this. This is all a part and parcel. But he never told them that it was going to be a bed of roses. He never told them it was going to be easy. He told them to expect some opposition if you, because he was opposed, because he was hated. If you walk and live in him, you will be hated also. You will be despised. You will be rejected as a result of it. And that's where we begin to examine ourselves and wonder why very many of us are not receiving any persecution. Very many of us are not being hated and rejected and despised. And I think if, if you're like me, that's where you begin to examine and begin to see how much we blend with the world. We are not separated from the world. Very few are, are separated from the world to the point that they're so different. You can see it. You can see it. And it, it always, if you belong to the world or you blend with the world, nobody notices you. But if you stand in the light and walk in the light, you like it. All right, so he says, all of these things, all of these things I've told you to guard against the breakdown of your faith. But he said, I didn't just tell you the good things and the bad things. I told you that even in the midst of the bad things, you're going to have someone, the Holy Spirit. You're going to have the, the divine helper, the advocate. You're going to have the Holy Spirit dwell within you. And where I've walked by your side during these three and a half years, and I've fought your battles, you know, I've done all these things for you. They've, they've taken it out on me, which in essence is fighting the battle for them. And you've been pretty free from persecution up to this point. What's going to happen when I go away? You're the ones, if you do what I tell you to do, if you abide in me and you dwell in me and you receive this persecution, expect it. But you're going to feel like you don't have anybody now that you don't have your leader, see. You're going to feel like you don't have anybody. But I want you to know that I will not leave you orphans. I'm not going to leave you helpless. And I'm not going to leave you in a hopeless state. When I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit from God. And I'll send him down to dwell in you. And that's going to be even closer than my physical presence beside you. This is an indwelling spirit. And the spirit within you will never leave you. For, there's not one place or one minute that you'll ever be, you know, where the spirit is not with you. And the spirit, remember, is the spirit of truth. The spirit, the continuing presence of Jesus Christ. And so he's with us at all times. That should take the sting. Should take the sting out of any fear of any situation if we know we're never alone. Sometimes we feel so alone, don't we? Sometimes we feel like there's not a person anywhere near and we forget the teaching that when we're born again, the Spirit dwells in us and never leaves us, never forsakes us for a moment, not even for a flashing moment. These are the things I told you so that you'll be on guard against the breakdown of your faith. That should have been enough. That should have been enough. If he had told me he'd give me peace, and he had told me he'd give me joy, and he had told me he'd give me love, he had told me he would never leave me and for, uh, nor, nor forsake me, if he had told me he would give me power to do whatever had to be done, if he had told me all of these things, I shouldn't have had any problem with what he's about to say. And for to be forewarned is to be forearmed, and we've heard that, I guess, all our lives. If you know things, if you know things, you know, if you, if you haven't had all the things concealed from you, if you know what it's all about, and you know there's going to be victory in it, then that ought to make you stand tall. Because Jesus never, the shepherd never lets the sheep alone. Remember the teaching of the good shepherd. The shepherd never leaves the sheep alone. He watches over them carefully. He calls them by name. He knows what you're going through. He knows that there's victory at the end if you'll rest in him. If you'll rest and abide in him. He knows there's victory for you no matter what the circumstance or situation is. All right, so he says, all of these things continuing in the dialogue about the true vine, I've told you to avoid against the breakdown of your faith. They will ban you from the synagogue. He gets down to the 
the, the things that they will do, some of the things, the uh, particular things they'll do. They'll ban you from the synagogue. He didn't tell them that a little earlier. He said, the world will hate you. But he says, now let me tell you what they'll do to you. They'll throw you out of the synagogue. Uh, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will suppose that he's performing a religious right, a religious duty. Now, this did happen to the early Christians. Remember what happened, especially in the case of Saul of Tarsus? A man who meant well. He was a good Jew. He was the best of Jews. And he really believed that what he was doing was right. And, and in all what he felt was good conscience delivering the world from these Christians, he set out with orders. He felt he had orders from above. And he set out to destroy Christians. His orders were wrong. The Christians were God's very elect, God's chosen, the people of faith. What he had designed everything for was fulfilled in the relationship of the believer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Relationship, mended relationship between God the Father and human beings that brought us together in Christ. All right, so this, this were his very favorite people of all time were these people Saul thought were the nuisance. Saul thought were the hinderers of God's work. And so Saul set out almost a clear conscience saying we rid the Roman world, rid our known world of Christians. And he did it. He felt he was doing the right thing. But you know, I honestly believe that was his thorn in his flesh. He, when he once realized how wrong he was, he never was able to shake it. He never was able to shake the fact that he had been an instrument you know, in the persecution of God's people. So he said, Jesus said to them, you will be kicked out of the synagogue, this place that you hold so dear to you, and you think you can't even pray except that you're in a synagogue. You know, they really believed that the only prayers that got to God were the prayers prayed in the synagogue of the temple. And he says, you're going to be kicked out of that, but remember what I told you, you'll never be alone. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you in the synagogue, on the hillside, in your home, wherever you are, I'm there. In the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm there. So you will, even if you're kicked out of a synagogue, you're not alone. We need to remember that. I think sometimes we begin to think, you know, that sometimes when we're away from the four walls of a church or something, that we are out of, of hearing distance or caring distance of God the Father, the, the vine keeper. All right, so he says, the time is coming when they'll kill you and suppose they're doing a religious duty. Now, remember this little bunch of 11? They were not the bravest people in the whole world. Please keep it in mind, the, the difference in what happened to this group before Pentecost and after Pentecost, after Jesus went back to be the, with the Father. And he said, this is what I've got to do. It's for your own good. Now, the, the crucifixion is the next day. And he's saying to them, listen, all of this has got to come to pass for your own good. It's for your good. As long as I stay here, you'll remain questioning, doubting, uh, weak, insipid people. You know, you won't ever count for anything. But look what happened when he went away. After he was crucified and resurrected and ascended back to be with the Father, and the Holy Spirit came in power to indwell the believer, they were changed men. They were totally transformed. They were filled with power. And these cowards, these doubters, were the ones who stood up and were kicked out of the synagogue, killed, uh, all manner of evil done against them. And they stood tall. 
because of the promise of Jesus. All right, they will do these things because they do not know either the Father or me. He had never told them this before. This was the first time. He says a little further down, this is the first time I told you these things. He had told them they would be, you know, that the world would hate them. He had told them before that they would be persecution, they would even be killed, but he had never told them that they would be banned from the synagogue. He had never told them that it would be done in the name of religion, and he had never at this point told them that the reason they would do it was because they didn't know the Father or him. These are some of the first things, first times that he's told them these particular things. So he says, I've told you all this so far that when the time comes for it to happen, you may remember my warning. That's the forewarned. You're, you're armed if you're warned about something. You know to stand up against it. It's when it catches you off guard that it begins to make you falter and make you fall. And this was not Jesus never left us in that predicament, never left these 11 in that predicament. He said, I've told you this, so when the time comes, you can remember. You can say he told us this. He knew what he was talking about. And he's not going to forsake us in the midst of this. I did not tell you this at first because then I was with you, but now I'm going away to him who sent me. Now this is, he begins again to tell them, I'm going away to him who sent me. Now I wish they had caught what he said right there. Because if they had known, had any concept of the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate God in flesh, had come from heaven's glory, from all the glory of heaven. He had left all of that to come and dwell like a man. If you ever get a picture, if you ever get a picture of what he left in order to come down here and live among us and identify with us in all temptation, all our problems, all our, our things that we have to go through, rejection, all of these things. He did that for a reason. And he did it so he could show us a perfect revelation of the Father, so he could show us a perfect example of how one should live in order to do this, to show us all these things. But, but even more than that, he did it so that he could live among us and then die a sinless, spotless sacrifice, Lamb of God, slain for our sin. And when he died and went back, he would be the pure high priest. He would be the one who could make a way for us to come to the Father. All of this for, was for a reason. But if they had understood that, they might have understood or might have with joy reached out to him when he said, I'm going back to be with the Father. If you had known he'd left all that and what he had gone through for us, wouldn't you have rejoiced to know that he was going to get a little relief now? He was going to get to go back to the Father. But that's not what... He said, none of you ask. Right on the hill's that He said, none of you ask, where are you going? You know, none of you are really that interested in what's going to happen to me. Doesn't that break your heart? None of you really are concerned about what I'm going through and what's going to happen to me. You're all so self-oriented. You're all thinking about what's going to happen to you, what's going to happen to me, myself, and I. And when they, they had asked questions similar to this because Peter had, had said, where are you going? But he didn't say it you know, in the way that Jesus was talking about here. It, uh, we'll go with you was what he was saying. But he was always thinking about it was somewhere in the vicinity of Palestine. He had no concept of where Jesus was going. So he had not asked, Lord, uh, tell me, you're going back to the Father. Explain this a little better to me. And when you go back to the Father, tell me what you want me to do here. Tell me what you want us to fulfill as far as your purpose is, is here. Tell us what we can do for you. See, they never were thinking about him. Always about themselves. And Thomas came along and said, Shut, we don't know the way. But he was doubting. He was objecting. He wasn't concerned with Jesus. He was concerned with himself, you know, figuring it all out. 
You know, how are we going to know the way? We don't know the way. All right, so Jesus said, none of you have been concerned at all about what I've been talking about, what I've been living, what I've been doing, what I'm going to accomplish tomorrow. None of you have been concerned about how you fit into this program, see, how you fit into this from a spiritual standpoint. They had always been thinking about the tangible. So he said, yet you are plunged into grief because of what I've told you. You know, you, you aren't thinking, you aren't thinking of, of it in terms of joy. You're so grief-stricken because you're a leader is going to die. You're so grief-stricken because he's not going to set up that millennial kingdom right here like you want it. You're so full of grief because of what might happen to you. You can imagine what their grief was coming from. You know, and when you're full of grief, you just very seldom are able to look at things in the right perspective. When you're feeling so sorry for yourself and you're so caught up in this web of self-pity and grief, you can't think, you can't think clearly. You can't look with any kind of eyes that have a clear insight into the spiritual significance of the situation. And so he says, you're plunged into grief because of what I've told you. But you know, the, the beautiful part about that, and show you what happened after he came back, turn over to Luke, very last of Luke. At this point, they were doing nothing but sitting there apparently feeling sorry for themselves and asking questions they shouldn't have been asking, they should have been listening when they were talking. But the very last of Luke... Um, after Jesus had been crucified and resurrected and he'd been back with them for 40 days, their, their grief was beginning to be dispelled for a time and was turning to joy. So then he led them out as far as Bethany and blessed them with uplifted hands. And in the act of blessing, he parted from them. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and spent all their time in the temple praising God. So you see what happened when they looked back on the cross and they knew he didn't just die, but he was raised from the dead. That put joy into their experience. It's the resurrection that gives us the joy. It looks like temporary defeat when he's killed, right? It looks like, you know, you begin to wonder why we worship uh, a crucified Jewish criminal. You begin to really have to ask yourself the question, what is there in this man that causes so many people to give their allegiance to the one everybody at that time, you know, just a crucified criminal? And yet there was something much more. And when they saw him in the resurrected body, in the power of the resurrection, they began to, to be filled with joy. And we're living in that day, and we're living in that age. We're living in the age of resurrection. See, we're living in, in resurrected lives. If we want them to be resurrected, they certainly can be resurrected. We can live in the power of the resurrection. And that's the, the, the life that's lived in joy. That's not the defeated, full of grief life. It's the life that's lived in victory. We can have that right now. If we want it, it's up to us to choose. It's all in whether we're just in the vine or we're dwelling in the vine. We're still in that discourse. It's all summed up in one or the other. They were not dwelling in the vine when they were so filled with grief that they couldn't understand what he was talking about. They were dwelling in the vine. They were beginning to know what the dwelling in the vine was when they were filled with joy because that's what he said, I'll give to you when you're uh, dwelling in me. All right, so he says... Um, you're plunged into grief uh, of what I've told you. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's for your good that I'm leaving. The most amazing thing to me about Jesus Christ is that he never thought of anybody's good but somebody else's. And he was always thinking of somebody else's good. He never, ever, I can't find a place where he was thinking of himself. It's so different. We're supposed to be like him. And we're so different today. We are so different. We think of ourselves, what somebody's not doing for us, what somebody should be doing for us, what somebody's thinking. We're always consumed with us. 
you know, instead of the, the Christ-like spirit, which is outside of self and always thinking of the other person. Now, at that time, he knew he was going to be betrayed. He'd already been betrayed. He knew within a matter of just hours, they would come and arrest him. He knew all that he was going to have to go through in the way of mock trials and all the, the despicable things they did to him, the spitting on him, the pulling his beard out, all that he knew what was going to happen. It was fulfillment of Scripture. And knowing all that and knowing that he was going to hang on that cross and die that horrible death, all of that, at that point, was he thinking about himself? He wasn't. With all of that happening, you would think he would have had a chance then to say, now listen, let's, let me think about me for a little while. I'm going to have to go through hell, your hell, in just a matter of hours. So it's time for me to think about myself. What we have recorded is, this is for your good. This is for your good. I'm thinking of you. I'm thinking of your good. And this is the reason why I'm going through all of this and why I'm leaving you. It's for your good. He says, if I do not go, your advocate will not come, whereas if I go, I will send him to you. And here again, if you just look at what happened when he went away. While he was here, he was limited as far as time and as far as location was concerned. He was limited in the flesh. He chose to limit himself, according to Philippians. But even then, even in this, uh, as, as much as pure as he was and as much the Son of God as he was, even in the flesh, even Jesus, the Son of God, was limited. But when he went away, when he went away, as far as they were, uh, the time he was with them in, in person, in the flesh, they didn't accomplish any tremendous feats. The disciples didn't. But he says, when I go away, it's, it's expedient. It's for your good. It's expedient that I go away so that the Holy Spirit can come because he's the one, the power within you, that will change you and make Peter not deny, but make Peter stand up and proclaim boldly the crucified, resurrected Christ. He would be the one who would take darling Thomas and change the power from within and would take him and change him and make him a dynamo, a, a one who started new churches all over that known area. He would take each one of those people and when they were cowards and retreated and hid when Jesus was going through all of this, those same men, when they were told, don't you dare preach the crucified Christ, they would go right out from, right out from floggings and begin to preach again. They weren't frightened anymore. You know, they weren't cowards anymore. So it was expedient for them. It was expedient for them that he got experience of death because until that happened, until that happened, there would be no power within. Until he died, until he was resurrected, until he went back to be with the Father and the Comforter came, there would be no help for these men. No real, true God help for these men. And he knew that. And, and remember Caiaphas, a few chapters back, do you remember when Caiaphas said in his ignorance, he didn't know what he was saying, but he was, he was saying it's expedient or for your good that one man die instead of a whole nation being destroyed? Really, he was saying something that was profound, though he said it in ignorance. This is what Jesus is really saying too. It's expedient. It's for your own good that I die, that I'm raised again from the dead, that that power become available to you and you can appropriate it in your life and you can live in power and not in defeat anymore. Do you realize we're still living in an age where we can live in power? And I wonder who we look more like. Do we look like the before or after? Do we look like the cowards? <laughs> the ones who hide and never want anything to go against them, never want anything to happen that'll upset them or anything? Or do we live in the power of the resurrection? In the power of the Holy Spirit? 
Alright, so he said, when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will confute the world, convict the world, and show where wrong and right and judgment lie. Three different ministries in this world. To the world. To the world. To the unsaved world and to the saved world. He really has the same um, ministry as far as, as conviction is concerned. He comes in the world and he shows there's sin. And he shows there's righteousness. And he shows there's judgment. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. He convicts the world. He convicts each one of us at some point in our life of sin. We all come to the place where we know we are undone. We're unclean. We're sinners. Whatever you want to call it. Every single one of us, before we can be saved, must recognize that we're lost. We must recognize that we're sinners. Who does that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of sin. And then the same Holy Spirit, once he's convicted you of, of your sin, doesn't just leave that you there. He comes over here and shows you that there is righteousness in Jesus Christ. That there's a way. God has provided a way. God loved us even while we were yet sinners. So much that Christ died for us. And Christ and all the fullness of righteousness is made available to us. And we can claim him and his righteousness. And we can overcome in the area of sin. You see what he's saying? When you come to see Christ at the cross and you see his righteousness and you bow before it, that's the Holy Spirit leading you to that place, wooing you to that place, convicting you, convicting you, and convincing you that there's a way out. He does that. The Holy Spirit, a person, one of the persons in the Godhead does that. He convicts us of our sin. He shows us that there's a way out in Christ Jesus. He shows us his righteousness. That's his job. All right, now he also goes a step further, and he says, now listen, here's your choice. You can choose sin or you can choose righteousness. But the result of your choice, if you reject Christ, if you re reject his righteousness and choose the world and all of its sin, you will be judged. The Holy Spirit makes you know there's a judgment day. There's a payday Sunday. He makes you know that you're not going to get away with your sins. The wages of sin is death. And the Holy Spirit is the one who tells us that and convinces us. It's like a, a, in a courtroom where they come in and they show the bad side and they show the good side. They convince you that the evidence they've got, the evidence they've got shows that there's righteousness here. They convince you that there's judgment at the end. There's a judgment bar and you have to stand before it. And so what he's saying here, when the Holy Spirit comes, listen, he will be the one who will go before you. He'll not only indwell you, but in this world you're in that hates you, the Holy Spirit will be actively at work with all of these people who are hating you, and he'll be convicting them, convicting them of their sin, of their lostness. He'll be convincing Christ Jesus, whether they accept it or reject it, they will know. And it's something about this man that's different. And then he'll convince them that unless they choose God's way and God's provision, they will receive the judgment. All right, so three things that he says about the world, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world, and we need to grasp that. All right, he will uh, convict them of wrong. Uh, he breaks it down a little bit more. He will convict them of wrong by their refusal to believe in me. See, he convicts of the sin of the world. We've got to remember that, that Jesus came to take away the sin problem, the sin question, the sin of the world. The Lamb of God came to take away the sin of the world. Sins, our sins, our, uh, the one basic sin problem is rejection of Jesus Christ. That's the one basic sin problem. Every other sin, our sins, are symptoms of our basic problem, our basic sin. And that's rejection, rebellion against God the Father, rebellion against the Son. That the symptoms are the sins. And he said he came to take care and convict of the sin question, 
the sin problem, rejection of the Son. We need to keep that in mind, too. All right, so he said, uh, convict them of wrong by their refusal to believe in me, and he will convince them that right is on my side by showing them that I go to the Father where I, when I pass from, sight, from your sight, and he will convince them of divine judgment by showing them that the prince of this world stands condemned. He will show them that what happened on the cross was the fulfillment back in Genesis when it said that the seed, he would, the, that Satan would bruise the, the seed, he would attack the seed, but then in the end, the seed would have the victory. The seed would have the victory, and Satan would be bruised, would be bruised. Satan would be uh, defeated in the cross experience. And they had to understand this. They had to understand that what happened on the cross when Jesus hung and when he died and when his blood was shed for the sin of the world, for the sin of the world, that was the end of Satan. Now, he's been judged and condemned. It'll be executed, the execution will be carried out in the future somewhere, but he's already judged, and he's already condemned. He's condemned uh, at the very point that Jesus died. That was the condemnation of Satan. That's what he's saying here. The prince of the world stands condemned. When he dies the next day, that will be the end of Satan having any power over anybody who trusts the blood as far as the sin question is concerned. Now, he can have victory in our lives in a daily fashion if we'll allow him to, but one day he won't even have that. And that's the beautiful part about the Scripture and the beautiful part about the Christian life is if we really believe in the, in the things that have been penned here, the things that have been inspired and given to us, we can go and read the last page. I'm a, a big one for reading the last page. If anything, I, I don't ever read a book where I go from beginning to end. I always go over and read the last chapter, and this, I do. I can't stand the suspense. And, and when I get that, then I read, and I'm just so happy all the way through because I know how it's going to end. <laughs> well, that's the way the Bible is. If you go over and read the end, Satan is cast into the abyss. He's forever. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. And if you miss that, it's frightening living in this age. But he's already condemned, and I believe that he didn't have a chance in the world except for what little area of my life I'll, I'm willing to give him in the course of a given day. That's all the power he's got right now as far as the Christian is concerned. And I don't know why we give him so much leeway. I don't know why we don't claim this power and this presence of the Holy Spirit and all that he has for us. All right, so he says in the 12th verse, there's still much that I could say to you, but the burden would be too great for you now. It's a tender Jesus. He, he's always his kindness, his love, and his, his tenderness, the gentleness of him always comes out. And he says, I know you can't take everything right, right now. And it's the same thing for us today. Aren't you glad he doesn't reveal everything to you at once? Aren't you really glad? Well, he knows we can't bear it, see. We get revelation as we are able to bear it. This is the way he's always worked. He worked with him. He said, there's much more I could tell you right now, but you're not able to bear everything right now. You're having a tough enough time with what I'm giving you right now. So you hang in there. He says, I'm crucified and resurrected, and I go back to be with the Father, and the Holy Spirit comes. He will reveal so much ending each day of your, your spiritual life. Each day as you grow, you'll have more revelation, more unveiling of the truth, of the purpose that I have for you. And this is the same. What happens along the way, we wonder why we don't get revelation. And remember that he reveals to us only so much as we've acted on already. That's how much we can bear. When he says something to us and reveals something to us, and we obey, we act on it, we continue to get further revelation and further revelation and further insight. But the minute we say no to him, we stop. 
all the channel of any more unveil, any more re revelation as far as his word is concerned or his purpose for our life. The minute we say no, the minute we close the door and say, I don't want to do that, that's the end of it. That's all we can bear. See, we've shown that we can't bear anymore up to that point. He'll work with us then, keep on working with us and applying some sandpaper and whatever's needed in our life until he brings us to the point of submission there. And then he'll begin to reveal again and we'll see growth. We'll see growth start to take place again. But he says, there's so much more, but the burden is too much for you right now. Remember how gentle he is. He'll give to us as much as we can bear. Some people can bear more in a shorter length of time. They're more obedient. They're in there growing and obeying and walking with the Lord and dwelling in him. And they can receive more. It seems that they grow real fast. And some people, it seems like it takes an eternity to grow one little inch spiritually. And it's because they haven't obeyed when the revelation was given to them initially. All right, however, when he comes, who is the Spirit of Truth? Now, he gives seven different things, seven different things about the Holy Spirit. He says he's the Spirit of Truth to begin with, the Spirit of Truth. That's Jesus said, I am the truth. So he's the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus dwells within you. He will be the Spirit of Truth. Secondly, he will guide you into all the truth, the truth. He didn't say he would guide you into all truths. Remember, he said very emphatically, I am the truth. There's one way, and that way is through the Father. That's the truth. And you go through the truth, through Jesus Christ. If you want to know truth, you go to Jesus. And you find in him the source of all truth. And he said the Holy Spirit will guide you into all the, the truth. All the truth. Now remember, the God, let's, well, let's go on. Let's take all seven and then come back to the God. The, the next one is, for he will speak not on his own authority. Once again, here we find one member of the Godhead saying that none of them act independently of the others. They all work together. All three personalities within the one Godhead work together. They all work with each other. They never work opposing one another. So he said he will not speak on his own authority, but he will tell you what he hears. This is what Jesus had said. Jesus said, I don't ever tell you anything. The Father doesn't share with me. The Father... You know, gives me to say what I say. So, once again, submission to the Godhead. We find submission and cooperation within the Godhead. He will make known to you the things that are coming. The things that are coming, not only to, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, the things that are coming in the early days of the church. He'll make known to you the things that are going to be out here as far as organization of my body is concerned. Many things. The Holy Spirit will make known to you what I want recorded in the Bible. These are the things that he did. He'll make known to you many, many things that are coming. He will make known to you things out in the future, the prophecy that comes out in the future. He will glorify me. For everything he makes known to you, he will draw from what is mine. One thing we will always find about the teaching of the Bible is the Holy Spirit will always glorify the Son, will always glorify Jesus Christ all the way through that we've read it. All right, go back over to where he guides you into all truth. I like that. I, I thought that was very interesting there because I thought, who needs a guide? Uh, for instance, well, three different categories at least. A blind person needs a guide. And so the Holy Spirit will guide the blind will guide the ones who are spiritually blind, and he will guide them into the light. And the second thing is weak ones are babies. You know, those who are so weak, they almost have somebody help them. Oh, babies have to be guided. You have to tell you, there goes no telling where they'll go if you don't guide them carefully along the way. So the Holy Spirit guides the weak ones and the, ba the baby Christians. And the third group are those who are in a strange country. You know, if you're, when we went to Israel, we had to have a guide. 
We didn't know our well ran, or, or I didn't. There were some of them who probably knew their well ran better. But if you go to any strange place where you're going to have to go through streets and everything, you need a guide. You need somebody to show you. Well, we're in a strange country. We're in a strange world. There's sojourners. We're sojourners. We're traveling through a strange world. This is not our home. This is not our locale. And we need a guide to get us through this country. We need a guide to get us through this world. So three different areas that the Holy Spirit will guide us in. He'll guide us as, as blind, those who are blind. He'll guide the weak babies, those who are unsafe, he'll, into a place of salvation. He'll guide the weak or the babes in Christ. He'll guide the weak ones, and he'll guide those who are just walking with him. But remember another thing about a guide. That indicates if you're guiding somebody that you're going along willingly. You're submitting to the God, right? It doesn't mean you're trying to go in another direction. He's dragging you along. That's not what he's saying. You're walking with him. He's guiding you very safely and very carefully through the way. All right, so did you get those seven things about the work of the Holy Spirit? Seven different things that he will do, and it all culminates in the fact that all of it will bring glory to Jesus Christ, to the Son. He will always draw attention never to himself, always to the Son, and that's something you need to hang on to, because this is what, as Christians, I think sometimes we get away from, is that the ministry of the church, this is the bride of Christ, and the bride of Christ needs to really put their emphasis upon the bridegroom, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we do, we'll be taught truth about Him, we'll be led into a deeper relationship with Him, and we'll walk through this world dwelling in Him, in the Son. He's the important person for us to have relationship with. When we have relationship with him, we have relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that one is any greater than the other. That's not what it teaches. It simply teaches that God's design is for the Spirit in the church age to glorify and uplift and magnify the Son. All right, all that the Father has is mine, and that's why I said everything that he makes known to you, he will draw from what is mine. This, here again, he reiterates the same thing he said, the cooperation of the Godhead. All that he makes known, he will draw from what is mine. And at the end of this, when we come to the, very, uh, fifth, well, to the 15th verse, and this is where we're going to stop, when we come to this place, we come to the end of the great allegory of the true vine. This is this, the stopping place at the 15th verse. It's the end of an allegory that he gave describing the Christian life and the relationship of God to Jesus Christ to the true vine. That was a...